0: You can take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of John, chapter 20. John, chapter 20. And uh, because we are still in the wake of Christmas, it just being four days out from the holiday, uh, we are for another week continuing our December Sermon Christmas series Glimpses of Jesus. And uh, I've really enjoyed these past few weeks hitting some text in the Bible that sometimes we don't automatically associate with Christmas to give us a fresh look at Christmas. And I will dare say that it is not often that someone probably has uh, preached a sermon during a Christmas series focusing on John chapter 20 and the Bible character who has acquired the nickname of Doubting Thomas. Merry Christmas. Uh, But what the Apostle John records here is extremely relevant for Christmas. As a matter of fact, uh, the very meaning of Christmas itself hangs on whether or not the things revealed in this story are true. Christmas is in the balance. Your joy is in the balance. Our very lives are in the balance and depend on whether or not the things that John has written in John chapter 20 are true and whether we believe that truth. Uh, the book of John is very concerned about belief. If you're familiar with this gospel, you would know this. The, the word believe or belief comes up dozens of times. As a matter of fact, the whole purpose that, uh, for John writing this book was actually to help people to believe. Uh, um, Maybe you noticed that in your last reading through the book of John, whenever that that was. That's something that always stands out to me when I read John. If you look at the end of this chapter, look down at verse 30. This is John's commentary on everything. He says, now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. And I think that this chapter here is a great way to end our Christmas series because, really, it's the… what we're about to read, I think, is the climax of the entire book of John. And it's the climactic moment of Jesus' ministry as as what we're going to read here is the guarantee that Jesus successfully fulfilled what he came to do his first advent. He successfully fulfilled his mission in coming to earth. And Jesus in our scripture today, I think, is essentially declaring to you, mission accomplished. Now, to help us get our bearings, let let me give you the context of what we're about to read. So, in John chapter 19, Jesus was crucified, and His corpse was laid in a tomb. Three days later, in the beginning of chapter 20, Jesus walks out of that tomb completely well, alive, healed, and in glory. And the first person He appears to is Mary Magdalene. Then as you follow chapter 20 down, Jesus appears to ten of the original disciples of Jesus. Two of them are absent. Judas is not there. Judas who betrayed Jesus, is now himself dead by suicide. And Thomas, for whatever reason, wasn't there when Jesus showed up. And Jesus greets those disciples… He commissions them to go into the world and preach the gospel. He says, as the Father has sent me, now I send you. And Jesus promises them them that they will not be alone in their mission. They will be equipped and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So all of that now brings us to verse 24 of chapter 20. So let's see what happens next. Please stand with me now as we get ready to read this text. We stand at Harbin's Church Uh, Out of honor and reverence for the reading of the Word of God, it's just a reminder that the the words that we're about to read, it's not just the mere opinion of man. These words are directly from God to us, and we should give careful attention to them. John chapter 20, and let's start in verse 24, and we'll read read on down through the end of the chapter. The Holy Spirit says, now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your holy and inspired Word, and I pray that You would help me, the preacher, to preach it well, preach it with clarity, to rightly divide it in a way that communicates Your Word and not mine. People didn't come here to hear me. They came to hear a word from God. So help me to deliver that. And Father, I pray for the congregation that you will give them ears to hear and a receptive heart to listen to and to believe your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So there are um, three things I want us to consider in our our text today. And and the first thing… Is, do we have the clicker hooked up? Ah, there we go. Uh, The descent into despairing unbelief. The descent into despairing unbelief. Now, history has nicknamed uh, this disciple Doubting Thomas, but Jesus is actually tougher on his disciple. Uh, While some translations render Jesus' rebuke as stop doubting but believe, the force of the Greek in which John was written is actually stronger than doubt. That's why the ESV, which is a little bit more of a literal translation, says, stop disbelieving, but believe. The King James says, be not faithless, but believing. Uh, Perhaps the strongest translation is the Holman Christian Standard Bible that says, don't be an unbeliever, but a believer. Uh, Thomas is not simply doubting. It's not simply that, hmm, well, maybe he did rise from the dead. I'm I'm just not sure. Maybe he did, and and, and, and I'm I'm open to this, and I'll I'll think about that. It's not that. Instead, Thomas has descended into firm unbelief. What Thomas is experiencing here is nothing less than a full-blown crisis of faith. And you can really get the strength of his unbelief in verse 25 it says the other disciples told him we have seen the Lord now uh, the Greek gives the sense that these disciples are persistently telling Thomas this over and over again they're like listen man we have seen him this is for real we're not kidding we're not joking we have seen the Lord they're telling him over and over again he is alive but despite their continued attempts of of convincing him look at Thomas's resolve he says he says no way Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So Thomas is dug in his heels. He is essentially saying, Your testimony is not sufficient for me. I don't trust what you're saying, and and I don't believe you. And unless things happen to my satisfaction, I'm going to continue to disbelieve. So for Thomas, seeing is believing. Now, we should camp out on this a little bit and think about this. What, what led to this unbelief? What's at the root of Thomas's unbelief? Because if you're just reading through John for the first time, Thomas's firm disbelief doesn't make a lot of sense. Thomas was a devout religious Jew who had a worldview that totally allowed for the supernatural. It, it wasn't just that he believed in the supernatural, though. He actually saw it. He had witnessed Jesus healing people, and he had witnessed Jesus casting out demons, and, and he saw him walking on water, and Thomas himself was given power by Jesus to do supernatural things. Thomas's worldview even allowed for a resurrection. As a matter of fact, he actually witnessed a resurrection. He witnessed Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. For a man who has a seeing-is-believing kind of attitude, why does he not believe as after seeing so much? why does the notion that Jesus rising from the dead seems so unbelievable to him? What's the problem? It's not that he believes that resurrections are impossible. Obviously, he believes that they are possible. It's in his worldview. It's not that he hasn't seen the supernatural. He has seen a lot of it. He's actually seen more than most people have. Instead, I think Thomas evidently must have had specific expectations about what God would do and what God would not do, what Jesus was all about and what he would do for Thomas and for the nation of Israel. And when God did not meet those expectations, the hopes and the desires and the dreams and the belief of Thomas were totally shattered, and he walks away in disillusionment. He walks away confused. We see this kind of despondent attitude in Luke chapter 24 with Clopas and his companion as they travel to the road of Emmaus. You remember that story? I love that story. And we find these, these two men, they are completely depressed and deflated and hopeless uh, in the wake of Jesus' crucifixion, and they're, they're reflecting on the murder of Jesus. And do you remember what they said? They said, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. In other words, we hoped that, but I guess not. The crucifixion had totally dashed their hopes because they expected something entirely different from Jesus. It's important to realize that as we read the Gospels, a crucified Messiah was not on anybody's radar, practically anyone. Uh, not even the 12 disciples. Uh, They all had totally different plans and expectations for Jesus, and they were totally taken uh, by surprise by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And this misunderstanding of Jesus and the uh, confusion and disappointment that comes with it is an ongoing theme in the book of John. You see this happening over and over again. People think they know what is true they think they know what Jesus is all about. People think they know who he really is and, and, and what he's really going to do. People hear Jesus saying one thing and people totally turn it around and they think he means something else. That's a reoccurring motif in John's gospel. And, and Thomas would have been like any other ordinary, devout, religious Jew back then who was convinced that God would send his Messiah into the world to do what? to die? No. To liberate the Jewish nation from Roman tyranny, to, to bring Israel into an unprecedented period of political and military power that would even exceed uh, the days of King Solomon and King David in the Old Testament. And, and so, this Messiah then would establish an earthly kingdom, an earthly empire, and he would bring about freedom and peace. So, so in the mind of the average Jew, they're thinking, the time for independence is here. Our king has come to us at long last after hundreds of years of waiting. And, and this, this Jesus, this king, he can heal sick people. Uh, he can raise dead people. He can create food out of nothing. Nobody can stop Jesus, not Rome, not anybody. Sign me up. I'm on, I want to be on his team. But <clears throat> when Jesus, in the wake of his triumphal entry to, into Jerusalem... Uh, hailed by the teeming multitudes to be the king of Israel, when he didn't lift his finger against a single Roman, and he didn't kill a single one of, his, uh, of the oppressors but was instead killed by them, nobody, not even the disciples, were expecting this. Never mind the fact that Jesus constantly taught that he would suffer and die and be crucified. He said this plainly. But they wouldn't listen because they were so committed to their own ideas and their own expectations and this little box of their own making that they had stuffed God into. This is how God's going to act. This is how God's going to respond. This is how God is going to work. I don't care what anybody else says about it. And, and, And when you are like that, that is a profoundly dangerous place to be because you can end up in a place where you will not even allow God himself to correct your opinions about God. <clears throat> you think about what happened in Mark chapter 8. <clears throat> and in Mark 8, Jesus is teaching the disciples about himself, and, and he reveals that he is the Christ. And, and of course, when the royal title of Christ is going through the heads of the disciples, they're thinking, conquering king who will establish a physical earthly kingdom right now. And, and we know this in Part because of the pushback that Jesus gets in uh, verse thirty-one of Mark eight, it says he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and he must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Okay, that's that's pretty plain. That's that's not hard to understand. There's a lot of hard parts of the Bible to understand. That's not this is not one of them. You would think. And, 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 and in case you have any doubts about that, Mark then goes on to write, and he said this plainly. He didn't say it cryptically. wasn't riddles or anything like that. wasn't something you had to puzzle out and figure out what he's saying. He said it plainly. And, and what's the reaction? It says Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. That's scary. He's rebuking the Lord Jesus Christ. Gospel of Matthew goes even further and quotes Peter as saying, No way! This is not going to happen to you, Jesus. But sticking with Mark 8, we see that Jesus says and does something very interesting. He says, But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So, Jesus rebukes Peter, and we all get that, and we all focus on that. But did you catch the first bit there? Text says, Jesus turns and sees who? The disciples. Jesus is looking at all of those disciples because Jesus' rebuke was not just intended for Peter. It was intended for every single one of them, for James, for John, for Matthew, and for Thomas. They all had their own expectations for Jesus. They loved Jesus and they had a wonderful plan for his life. And that plan did not include suffering and dying on a cross. And when Jesus teaches something different, they don't listen. They are so committed to their own idea of God and what God's going to do. They are locked into that. But when we put God in a box... Uh, And and not only put him in a box, but when we have our own specific plans and expectations for God while refusing to hear what God says, uh, when we pick and choose what parts of God's word we want to embrace and what what parts we'll reject and pretend don't exist, we set ourselves up for significant disappointment in, in God and a severe crisis of faith when God doesn't fit into the box we've made for him. I saw this in my own life, in my early days as a Christian, and I was going to a church that uh, embraced the prosperity gospel. Some of y'all know what that is. A, A church that believed that it was God's will for you to be healthy and wealthy all the time if you just had enough faith, if you just believed hard enough. And they loved the parts of the Bible that talked about God's provision and God's power to heal. They loved that. They accepted that. They received that. But they totally ignored the parts of the Bible that just don't talk about suffering, but actually promise it, Uh, that promise tribulation. Parts of the Bible that talked about enduring through all kinds of difficult trials. And one of the dangers of this kind of teaching, um, well, it puts unbiblical expectations on God, and, and, and many in the health and wealth movement have slid into disillusionment and anger at God, and some have even lost their faith and slid into unbelief. Why? Because they were so convinced that God would conform to their purposes and plans, and they were not interested in conforming to God's purposes and plans as already revealed in His Word. They were in love with their Word more than they were with God's Word. They ended up trusting their own interpretation of reality more than God's revelation of reality. And we all struggle with this to one degree or another. You don't have to be an adherent to the prosperity gospel to, to struggle with this. There's, there's a temptation for all of us to, to maybe gravitate towards certain parts of this book, parts of this Word that, that we love, and, and we don't think about some of the other stuff that's a hard word to us. We're all in danger of that. We've got to turn away from this notion of holding up our thinking and our expectations as supreme, as, as, as the things that seem right in our own eyes as, as supreme, and, and we've got to submit those things to the wisdom and the plans of God. And Thomas here in John 20 is, is struggling with this big time. I'm not believing. I've been let down by God once, and I'm not setting myself up for disappointment again. But, but it really wasn't God that let him down. It was his own ideas and expectations that he projected onto God that he put his hope in. And It was that that let him down. It was that thing that dragged him into despair. If he would have heard and received and trusted God's Word in the first place, he would not have been resisting a resurrection. He would have been expecting one. Thomas could have saved himself much angst and much misery and much grief if he had been submissive to God's word in the f- first place, if he had been submissive to what Jesus had already been telling him for three years. That's why, friends, it's so important to let our ideas and beliefs about God be conformed by what he's already told us. We tend to do it the other way. I don't like what God has said about this or that, so I'm going to try to bend God into my image. And that never works. Uh, And when we do that, we're creating an idol. And sooner or later, our idols will fall and fail us and will plunge us into despair. But God doesn't want us to stay in that despair. God doesn't tear down our idols ultimately to hurt us, but to give us something much better, which is namely himself. And that leads to my next observation, which is the graciousness of Christ, the graciousness of Christ. Text says, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. I find it interesting that Jesus waits a whole week before appearing to Thomas. Jesus didn't have to do that. He could have appeared to him on Monday. You know, on, on, you know he, he, missed the, he missed that first appearance to the, to the disciples on Sunday. Jesus could have just appeared to him on Monday. He doesn't do that. He, 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 he lets him stay in this dark place. Thomas is unbelieving. Thomas is struggling, and Jesus allows Thomas to be in that place for a time. He allows Thomas for a little while to sit in that dark place among the ruins of the idols that have just been smashed. And it's an act of God's grace to allow us to get to that dark place because, because it's at that point where all the other things that we think we want and need have failed us. It's at that point where we hit rock bottom and we realize that, that all, we have, all we have is Jesus. That's the only one that we can turn to. And, and I mean the real Jesus, not not a fake one that's molded into our image that we are hoping will give us what we want, but the true Jesus who alone can give us life and, and hope and, and the peace and joy that we need. I wonder how many of you here this morning, uh, you're being taken through that experience right now. Uh, God is taking you through that, that, that dark place right now where he is denying you the things that you want. He has torn down your idols he has taken away the things that you have desperately hoped for more than you've hoped in God. And he is allowing you to feel that disappointment, and he's allowing you to feel that discouragement to prepare the soil of your heart to experience the better things that God has coming for you. Well, the shattering of Thomas's false expectations and hopes, I think, provides... Rich, fertile soil on Thomas's heart for the seed of truth to be planted there and, and to take root. And and the stage now is set for this troubled disciple to finally receive and embrace and enjoy not the Jesus of his own imagination, but the real Jesus. Verse twenty six. <clears throat> Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. I like that. Doors are locked. Jesus is there. It's one of the benefits of being God. Locked doors don't keep you out. He says, Peace be with you. <clears throat> then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve. I think there's a there's another rebuke there, by the way. Do not dis I think there's a rebuke there. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Do not be an unbeliever, but believe. Be a believer. Jesus declares to his disciples, to Thomas, peace be with you. Now, that's interesting because the week prior to this, Jesus did the exact same thing for the other ten disciples. He appeared to them, and, and then he declared to them peace, and then he showed them the wounds in his hands and in his feet. And the significance of those wounds cannot be overstated. Those wounds are a reminder of Jesus' cross, of his death. They are a reminder of the very thing that Thomas had been resisting all of those years. This insane idea that Messiah would actually die a painful and shameful death on the, on the cross. Jesus now puts on display the tokens of that death as he displays his wounds, as he displays the thing that did not fit into Thomas's little God box, the thing that Thomas hated. and And he invites, in that moment, Thomas to renounce the idols of the past and submit fully and Finally, to the one true God, uh, to submit to the whole purpose of why Jesus came in the first place, and why did He come? What's Christmas all about? Yes, we love our little nativity sets, and we love our little little hallmark postcards with the cute little baby in the manger, and we love all the sentiment and warmth that the Christmas season brings, but never let us forget that the future of the babe in the manger is an old, rugged cross. One day, the newborn babe would be a man in his mid-30s with nails in his hands and nails in his feet, drowning in his own blood and calling out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the last thing that Thomas wanted to happen, but it was the one thing that he needed the most, and it's the one thing that we need the most. Thomas wanted a warrior clad in armor on a war horse with a sword, leading an army of thousands, crushing the Roman Empire. But what Thomas got instead was Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. A- and why? Why was Jesus stricken by God? Isaiah goes on to say that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. So, so he was crushed not for his own transgressions and sins, because he had none. Instead, he was crushed for Thomas's unbelief, and he was crushed for our pride Our anger, our lust, our gossip, our lying, our stealing, our adultery, our complete and total rejection of God. He was crushed for all of that, all of that ugliness in the hearts of sinners, all of that stuff that we deserve to be crushed for is put on Christ, and he was crushed instead. That's why Isaiah says next that upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And that's why Jesus can turn to Thomas and to the disciples, and he can hold out those marks, those symbols of his wounds, and he can turn to them and say, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Shalom. And he shows them those wounds, which are a token of the punishment he received on the cross on their behalf. He, he can't say, peace be with you, if there's no wounds. That, that would be a sham. If Jesus had conformed to Thomas's plan, if Jesus didn't suffer and die on the cross, if Jesus gave Thomas what he wanted, then there is no one to take Thomas's place in receiving God's wrath, which means that Thomas would need to endure God's wrath which would mean there would be never any peace for Thomas for the rest of his life and for eternity because there is no peace in hell. But now, because of the wounds, Jesus can offer peace to Thomas. Jesus can offer peace to you. Isn't God's way so much better than our way? Thomas thought he... Knew what needed to happen in his arrogance. We think we know what needs to happen. We get mad at God. He doesn't do what we think that he should do. We disagree with how he runs and governs the universe. But he proves to be right every single time. Thomas thought he knew what he wanted and needed, but he hadn't a clue. He hadn't a clue. Isaiah goes on to say, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. All have gone astray. All have gone astray. All have gone astray. Thomas, you, and me, and everyone. We're, we're, We're sinners. We're rebels against God. God says, go this way. You have said, no, I'm going this way. And as a sinner and rebel against God, we face condemnation and wrath and hell. Sin is spiritually killing humanity like a brutal disease, and that's why we need healing. And that's why Thomas needed it, and why we need it. And Isaiah 53, 6 says that the Lord has laid on him, on Christ, the iniquity, the sin of us all. Folks, that's what Christmas is all about. That's why it's a big deal. That's why we sing and celebrate Jesus. That's why we sing and celebrate Jesus, not just uh, during Christmas time, but we, we do it every single week here. And you should do it every single day, and I should. Jesus' visible wound marks in His hands and His side are a way of saying the mission that Jesus began at Christmas has been accomplished. Mission accomplished. Here's the evidence, here, here, and right here, standing before you, breathing. And despite Thomas's arrogant and obstinate unbelief, Jesus is so gracious to Thomas. He comes not condemning Thomas. Do you know why He comes not condemning Thomas? Because Jesus has already been condemned for Thomas. He doesn't come with condemnation. Jesus instead comes to save Thomas. And to invite Thomas to believe in the only thing that can save him from judgment. Thomas can't be saved by being a good guy. He's not good. And he can't be saved through religion. He's been religious his whole life, and that didn't get him anywhere. Jesus comes and invites Thomas to do the only thing that can bring him peace with God and bring him eternal life. He says, Jesus says, do not disbelieve, but believe. That is both a rebuke to Thomas and, at the same time, an invitation. It's a rebuke because the implication here is that Thomas should already be believing. He should have already been believing. The word of Jesus before his death should have been good enough. And also, and this is very important, the testimony of the disciples after his resurrection, should have been sufficient. But now Jesus invites Thomas to repent and to do what he should have done all along, which is to believe. And that leads to my third point, the rise of bold belief. The rise of bold belief. Not the rise of Skywalker. The rise of bold belief. That's the kind of rising I'm most interested in. What is Thomas to believe? Well, it's not just any old belief that will save Thomas. Thomas believed in stuff before the resurrection, and that didn't help. Now, you could go down to verse 31 and and say, "Well, well, Thomas needs to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Well, that's true, but what does that mean? Thomas believed that Jesus was Messiah previously. And there are all kinds of people, even today, who are not Christians who say they believe that Jesus is Messiah. Well, there are two critical things that Thomas needs to believe. The first is that Jesus is raised from the dead. Isn't that where this story begins in the first place? With Thomas's disbelief in Jesus' resurrection? And why is that important? Well, it's important because to believe in the resurrection is to believe also in what Jesus did on the cross through his sacrificial death. There's no way you can separate Good Friday from Easter Sunday. The whole meaning of Jesus' atonement on the cross is bound up in his resurrection. Because if Jesus did not raise from the dead, that would mean that Jesus was an ordinary sinner just like the rest of us. But. His resurrection is the proof that He died and paid the price for our sins and that His payment was accepted by God the Father. His sacrifice was more than sufficient. And so, to reject the resurrection is to reject the atonement. That's a big deal. And to reject the atonement means to still be dead in your sins and on your way to hell. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And that's why Romans 10.9 says that if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But that's not the only thing you need to believe in. There's lots of people who believe in a resurrected Jesus who are not saved. There's one other crucial thing Thomas needs to believe and receive. And as he is standing there looking at the risen Jesus, as the truth of the resurrection now is sinking in, you can just imagine all of the synapses in Thomas' brain are just exploding. So much of what Thomas had thought and believed is being blown apart as this ex-corpse is standing in front of him. And I can imagine in that moment, all of the things that Jesus had previously said that were at first cryptic and mysterious and confusing to Thomas because of his own preconceived ideas, all of those things are now flooding back into his brain in a moment in time. Things like, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, give his life as a ransom for many. Things like, destroy this temple… And in three days, I'll raise it up again. Things like, I lay down my life of my own accord. No one takes it from me. I lay it down, and I will take it up again. Things like, before Abraham was, I am you can imagine all of these things rushing upon Thomas's mind as he makes sense of everything and the light bulbs begin to go off like fireworks in his brain. As Thomas begins to see and believe not just the resurrection of Jesus, but also the true identity of Jesus. Can you imagine, my friends, the awe and the wonder and the joy and the fear and the amazement all rushing upon Thomas at once as all of the puzzle pieces begin to come together, and he suddenly realizes who this one is that he has been eating with and drinking with and learning from and befriending these past three years. Who is this man really? And this this newfound belief that begins in his heart explodes out of his mouth as he now finally realizes who this man really is. And he cries out in verse 28, My Lord and my God. It's you. It's been you all along. And this declaration is unquestionably the climax of John's gospel. And it really brings us full circle in the, in the book because John, in the opening sentences of his book, says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He became flesh, John says. He became human. God became human. That's Christmas. That's Christmas. That's what we celebrate. Uh, Two thousand years ago, in the little town of Bethlehem, the Word became flesh, And an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, "'Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins.'" All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet: Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call His name Emmanuel, which means "God with us." Does it mean prophet with us? Does it mean angel with us? It means God with us. Friends Thomas struggled with his own ideas of what God is, who God is, what he should do, and, and, and what he should be. We've all struggled with this from one, one degree or another. But friends, the truth about God, the, as revealed in the Scripture, is so spectacular, and it's so marvelous, and it's so beautiful, it is way better than anything that Thomas, or you, or I could dream up. You can't make this stuff up. The Christ, the Savior, The emissary and ambassador of God turns out to not be some sort of middleman. Not some sort of mere human with superpowers. And not even an angel. God himself comes. He does the job. He himself bears the shame of the cross. He himself bears the judgment of sin. He doesn't just, he doesn't send anyone else to do it. He takes it upon himself for your good, for your joy, for your peace, for his glory. God's the hero of the Bible, and would you expect the hero of the story to do anything less? And in coming to earth, Jesus does actually come as a conquering warrior, just not in the way that Thomas thought. He came in a much better way. Jesus came on to take take on greater foes and more powerful and more deadly foes than the Roman Empire, than Caesar. He came to take on the unholy trinity of sin and Satan and death, which kept us in bondage. And He smashed those enemies in the teeth, and He crushed the head of the serpent, as was foretold in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, to our first parents, Adam and Eve. As the old carol says, God, rest you, merry gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay, for Jesus Christ our Savior was born upon this day. Why? Here it is, to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Now, I know that y'all are normally a pretty subdued uh, congregation, but I really hope, at least in your hearts, if not outwardly, there's some comfort and joy and some zeal and excitement about Christ and what He has done welling up in your hearts. Thanks for that. And Thomas does what Paul says we must do in Romans ten nine. Paul says, not only must we believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, but that we must confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. It's exactly what Thomas does here. We must receive Jesus as Lord. We must surrender to Him. We must submit to Him, to His ways, to His agenda, to His priority, to His plans, You see, for three years, Thomas had resisted the priorities of Jesus because Thomas, like all of us, want to be Lord. We want to be in control. And in this glorious moment, Thomas, who unfortunately has the nickname of doubter, in the end turns out to make the greatest declaration about Jesus than any other character in John's gospel. And he, he, gives up, he gives up his own ambitions and his own preferences and his own desires in that moment, and he removes himself from the center, and he puts Jesus in his rightful place at the center of Thomas's existence, and he declares Jesus to be Lord and God. Christmas means that Jesus is the King, that He is Lord, that He is God, and not just in December, y'all. Is Jesus just someone that that we give some props to in December? Or will he be Lord and master of your life today, and in January, and in February, and in March, and throughout all of 2020? Will you, like the angels, sing praises to him? Will you, like the shepherds, drop everything just to be in his presence? Will you, like the wise men, pursue him and be willing to give up your most valuable treasures for his sake because you realize that he's the treasure? And will you, like Mary, cherish him in your heart with love and adoration? Now, you may say, well, maybe if I get a post-resurrection experience like Thomas, then I'll believe in him. But to have that attitude is to totally miss the point of this story. Thomas should have believed without Jesus appearing to him. You want Jesus to rebuke you too? Thomas should have believed. He should have listened to the word of Jesus prior to his death, and he should have listened to the testimony of the disciples after his resurrection. That's why Jesus rebukes him. But then, as Thomas is gazing in awe at his God, Jesus turns and almost as if breaking the fourth wall in a play or in a movie, as if turning to you, He says in verse 29, blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Jesus foresees a time where he will not provide the kind of tangible evidence afforded to these handful of early disciples, because soon after this, he would ascend to his Father, and moving forward from then until now, those who believe will do so without the benefit of having seen the resurrected Lord. So that begs the question, if we won't get what Thomas got, what do we get? What, what do we get? <laughs> do we get? How, how do we believe? John addresses that in the next verses. Verse 30, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. These are written, John says. These are written. Uh, the, the way to bold belief The way to faith is through the written word. It is through the testimony of the apostles and the prophets in this book. If you reject this, you will never believe. And the testimony of God's word through his apostles, as now is recorded here, is trustworthy and true. That's precisely the lesson that Thomas learned More than that, the Apostle Paul, later on in Scripture, says that God works through His Word to awaken and build our faith, as He tells us that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by His Word. God doesn't promise us today supernatural signs and wonders and resurrection encounters. He instead promises that He will supernaturally work through the power of His living Word, which the Bible says is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is powerful, it is effective, and it is sufficient and it is all you need. And so, as we leave Christmas behind and turn our eyes towards 2020, this story challenges us all. And the challenge is, will you listen to this Word? Will you believe it? It's a challenge for everybody here, whether whether you're a Christian or, or if you're here this morning as an unbeliever. It's a challenge for everybody here. Christian brothers and sisters, have you been satisfied with your commitment to God's Word? Are you reading it? Are you receiving it? Are you learning it? Are you meditating on it? Are you, by faith, living by it? Are you, by faith, allowing this Word to completely shape and, if necessary, rearrange your thinking? Not expecting God to fit into your box and your preferences, but instead bending towards His Word and His will? Maybe there's some of you here that are uh, like Thomas, you, you need to repent of elevating the way you want life to go down. You're elevating that over and above his plan, because the thing that the thing that finally brought Thomas peace was when he conformed his thinking and his view of reality to the truth of God's word and the wisdom of God's plan. Brothers and sisters, as we move into the new year, will you submit to His word? Will you submit to His word more in 2020 than you did in 2019? If you are an unbeliever, the call for you is to hear the voice of Jesus who said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And to believe is more than just believing some facts about Jesus. It is to receive and embrace the truth about who Jesus is and what he came to do. And it is to say with Thomas, my Lord and my God. Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, and the Word of Christ is contained in this book. If you want to believe, if you want to have faith, then I challenge you, read the Bible in 2020. If you're not sure where to start, start with John's Gospel. It was written with the express purpose to help you believe. Or uh, you can get one of those read the Bible in a year plans. You can do that. This is, you know, this is the end of the year. People start thinking about this and making plans. What am I going to do, you know? I'm not a big New Year's resolution guy, but if you're going to, you know, make a resolution, why don't you resolve yourself to read God's Word every day? I guess that's a great resolution. I mean, you could still make a resolution to, to lose weight or whatever if you want, but while you're in the gym, listen to God's Word through your earbuds. Listen to it. Get into it and get it into you. Of course, you don't have to read the Bible in one year or a two-year plan. The, the time it takes to read doesn't matter as much as whether you're just simply reading it, reading it carefully and paying attention to what you read. If, if it helps, I would be more than happy to meet with you personally. Every week, every other week, whatever, we, we can form a little Bible reading club. Me, you, uh, whoever else want to be in it, young people, old people, teenagers, unbelievers, believers, whomever. I love to to, to read and and talk through the Bible with you one-on-one or in small groups or in my office or I'll come to you or over coffee, whatever. We'll work something out. It it really is that important. I'm not going to chase you down about this though. You, You can come to me and you can tell me if that's something you're interested in. But just a warning, if you take up this book in 2020 and you read it, do not be surprised if you are forever changed and transformed by it as you encounter Jesus in this book like never before don't be surprised if even if you are an unbeliever now that as you take up the challenge to read this book that you too like Thomas and me and others in this room and millions all over the world don't be surprised if you too end up believing that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you might have life in his name and may it be so